Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Wendy Boltzer about supporting the recovery of post-orthopedic surgical cases. Dr. Boltzer graduated with a DVM from UC Davis in 1994. She then received her PhD at Texas A&M University in 2003 and became board certified in the American College of Veterinary Surgery following her residency at Texas A&M in 2007. She received board certification as a certified canine rehabilitation practitioner by the University of Tennessee in 2012 and became a diplomat in the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation Canine in 2013. From 2005 to 16, she was an Associate Professor of Small Animal Surgery and Sports Medicine at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Oregon State before moving to New Zealand to work as Associate Professor of Small Animal Surgery at Massey University School of Veterinary Science. She now resides in Sydney, Australia, where she is Associate Professor at the University of Sydney Veterinary School and Head of Surgery at the University Teaching Hospital. And lastly, her research, which includes over 65 publications, has investigated the effects of oxidant stress on agility exercise in dogs, ligament and tendon injuries, augmentation of fracture repair, and the management of osteoarthritis in small animals. Wow, Wendy, that is an impressive bio. Welcome, and how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for giving up part of your busy day to be a honoured guest on the Pure Animal podcast. Before we get started with what we're going to be talking about today, which is largely post-op recovery support and the work that you do with some of your cases, I'd really love to know about your sort of life background and, and what actually made you interested to become a vet and particularly so an orthopedic surgeon? Um, yeah, that's a, kind of a classic story in that um, I grew up in California um, and my parents had a 300 acre ranch um, and we had cattle, horses. Um, for a while we had pigs, we had sheep a little bit. Our neighbor had a lot of sheep. We had um, obviously dogs and cats and chickens. And one time we had turkeys, you know, all that kind of stuff. So (laughs) my my next door neighbor was a veterinarian. So it was animals were always just a normal part of life. And I I actually have never lived without an animal. (laughs) Oh, wow. Of of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was just a normal progression of, of, what I thought would be a, a good profession for me because I wanted, if I was going to have to work 80 hours a week, I wanted it to be something that I, I loved doing, which is helping animals. So, yeah. I love that. 80 hours a week. <laughs> is that how much you're working at I, the moment? <laughs> um, I probably work 50 to 60 hours a week, but remember, so I'm a, I'm a Gen X, um, yeah. <laughs> so when we were growing up in high school, they said, you know, you're going to be working really long hours. There isn't going to be any form of retirement or social security. You know, you're going to have to be paying for baby boomers. And, you know, it's, it's they did not paint a pretty picture for us. Um, yeah. 
And so they were very honest about, you know, saying you're going to have to work really hard and think about what you would want to do for a really long time that would keep you interested. And so for me, it was mostly, you know, I, I related better to animals than people, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so for me, that was a natural way to go was to continue taking care of animals. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Gosh. Well, I can honestly say that <laughs> being Gen Y, we weren't fed the same sort of story that we would have to work 80 hours a week. But I think that's how a lot of people have ended up working these days, particularly after COVID, because everyone's working from home that are office-based and there's just no sort of start and end to anyone's day anymore. So I'd hate to think of how many hours most people are averaging at the moment. It's true. And with, with the all the unrest in the world and all the things that are happening, um, I feel really lucky to to be a veterinarian where... I can continue to do my job mm. um, that I'm very much needed. Of course. And really interesting people are because they're at home all the time, they're adopting a lot of um dogs and cats because yeah. they're great companions. Yeah. So so your work's increased, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Wendy orthopedics and surgery, where did the interest spark? Was it during vet school or before that or after that? Yeah, I was going to, in vet school, I was I was planning to become a mixed practice veterinarian who um, did, you know, horses and cows as well as dogs and cats. And then I had my third year, I had my surgery course and um, I loved it, but, you know, I didn't think much about it. But one of my professors approached me and said, Wendy, you, you, you're pretty good at this. You should be a surgeon. And I said, oh. well you know, I don't know, maybe a horse surgeon. And he said, no, 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 no. You need to be a small animal surgeon. And he was the first person to do uh, kidney transplants. Mm, Wow. Yeah. And I thought I could never do that. And he said, sure, you could. And so he actually encouraged me to go on. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm still in, in academics. And I'm now a teacher of vet students. But yeah, he opened my eyes to the fact that I could do something that I thought was really hard, but that he was like, nah, it, no, you could do it. And so, yeah. So lovely to have a mentor so early in third year who's really inspired you to be where you are today. Exactly. I really felt like, um, I felt like an individual with my, my, my instructors and my professors in vet school. And I also felt like, um, they actually cared. And I think that that's what is really important. And I, one of the aspects I really enjoy about being a teacher of vet students is that you connect with the students and you talk to them about what they want to do with their life after they become a veterinarian. Because it's it's not always, you know, the classic thing. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. You can do all kinds of things as a vet. So, I try and and connect with my students as well, but I think that's because I had people who connected with me. Yeah, amazing. And you're currently working at the University of Sydney. Yes, I'm an associate professor of small animal surgery, sports med and rehabilitation. Right. And so where, what sort of years are you teaching at the moment? Is it mainly just final years during their rotation through the teaching clinics or you're lecturing to earlier years as well? 
Yeah, I lecture second years as well as, and that's when they start learning um, more about orthopedics and um, those types of, of problems. And then third year, I teach them extensively, both in lectures and in labs where they're learning surgical techniques and um, how to do things. And then 50% of my job is in the teaching hospital. And so we're on the floor with actual patients and I'm teaching them while I'm doing my actual orthopedic and, you know, rehab yeah. uh, practice. So yeah, I have them um, second, third and fourth year. Wow. You sound really busy, but as well as that, you're doing some research too. That's part of your role. Yes. And yes. so part of my role is also research, um, which is about like 25%. Mostly mm-hmm. my research is on, um, uh, obviously surgical diseases. I do some research on, uh, fractures, so broken bones, mm-hmm. and using stem cells from um, the dog or cat's abdomen. Mm, and wow. Yeah, and placing them in the region where the fracture, the broken bone has occurred. And then that stimulates healing from there. So that's one of my main arms of research. I have another arm of research that's in um, lower back pain in dogs, which actually is mm. extremely common. And it's actually common in cats as well. Mm-hmm. And, and understanding that lower back pain and and how it relates back to humans as well. Um, it's very similar in humans and dogs and understanding um, how we can treat it better and why does it occur. Um, and so that's another arm of my research. And then my third arm is on um, um, osteoarthritis mm-hmm. and joint disease that occurs. And that can be... Um, in young dogs, um, it can, and cats, it can be in working dogs. Um, I do a lot of research with police and military dogs Mm -hmm. and how, and they all get arthritis because of their, you know, high impact work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The nature of their job. Yeah. And then finally geriatrics. So Mm -hmm. older dogs and cats, um, they very commonly develop osteoarthritis. So about, um, you know, one in five dogs um, has arthritis and about 80% of cats over the age of 12 is affected with arthritis. So it's actually really common. And so with the research you're doing into low back pain, that's non-arthritic causes of low back pain. So it's more muscular, sorry, soft tissue, muscular and tendons and ligaments that are involved. Yeah. And so well, low back pain is really a a very um, intriguing and and we don't know the whole reasons behind it. But um, in most people and dogs, it starts with um, overuse injuries that then result in deterioration of the disc Mm -hmm. between the vertebrae. And then that deterioration leads to swelling and inflammation and release of these enzymes that not only chew up the disc, but they cause the ligaments to weaken. And that then results in instability. And you can actually sort of subluxate your lower back that then leads to arthritis in your back and also has been shown recently to result in deterioration of the the vertebrae themselves so the bone deteriorates and wow. what happens is the whole thing collapses and 
you know, where your nerves are exiting your vertebra, they get entrapped in this collapsed vertebrae as well as arthritis. Mm -hmm. And it causes horrific nerve pain. Mm -hmm. And then you also grow nerves into the bone and your bone hurts. I mean, it's horrific. And yeah, it can be really debilitating in, in humans and dogs. And so what we're trying to do is understand like early on, what are the signs that somebody is going to go on and develop this, these, this horrific endpoint. And then so that we can, you know, prevent it from happening. And then also understanding, you know, how do we treat this? Do we, do we just stabilize them and fuse their spine? Do we put in a new disc? We often find those things don't, 100% work because they still have deterioration of the bone and we need to figure out how to stop that bone deterioration as well as tendon and ligament and disc deterioration. So it's quite interesting and and something that's really, I I had a donor um, at another vet school that I worked at who who actually died of lower back disease. And it was so sad to me. And so it became something that I really wanted to study. And then I found in in military and police dogs, that's the number one reason they are retired from service is lower back pain. So, Mm. you know, really common. Yeah, right. And so just going back a bit, this is really interesting to me. This is a, a tangent, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> but that's fine. So you said that you're you're trying to identify early signs so that you can put in some preventative techniques to try and slow progression of disease. What would be some of those preventions that you would be implementing? Yeah, so we're trying to look at ways we can um, – reduce inflammation in the body and um, especially in animals that have inflammation. So we're talking about not just medications, but also changing their diet, um, changing the way they exercise um, and changing their environment. So things like, you know, housing on slick floors, like hardwood floors, Mm or tile, which have become really common in the last 20 years mm-hmm. um, versus, you know, in the, in the late eighties and nineties, nobody, everybody had carpet. Yeah. And so they weren't on, you know, unsure flooring. And so we think maybe the switch to slick flooring has not been good for their lower back. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're talking about diet. There are ways to eat healthy, to reduce inflammation in your diet. So, you know, high omega-3 um, diets. So mm-hmm. fish diet-based diets are, have been shown to reduce inflammation in the body and mm-hmm. could potentially reduce the risk of developing lower back pain and arthritis. Okay. And so are you a proponent of a, a home-cooked diet or are you talking about supplementing their existing diet with omega-3 supplements? Yeah, I'm I'm not a proponent of home cooked diets and I'm not a proponent of raw diets. I'm I think that um a formulated diet is best because I mean if you were to do a home cooked diet correctly, it would take you at least three hours a day. And you know, at zoos they spend at least three hours per, you know, animal devising and weighing out all the ingredients and making sure 
that everything is exactly right. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you purchase a commercial diet, it's already done for you. Mm -hmm. And they have commercial diets where they are higher in, in fish for animals with, um, you know, who are predisposed to having arthritis or other, you know, lower back pain and things like that, certain breeds of dogs, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they do that work for you. And then when I, the other great thing about formulated diets is that I can then look at what's on the package and say, okay, now I know there's not quite enough omega-3 fatty acids in that diet. I'm going to tell you how much, you know, fish oil you need to supplement with um, in order to to get you to the level where we're inhibiting um, excessive inflammation. So Mm -hmm. I think that that makes the job of uh, making sure they're getting what they need so much easier, you know, and, and like in puppies, you know, large breed puppies, they have to have a calcium to phosphorus ratio in their diet of 1.2 to one or less mm-hmm. any more than that. And it markedly increases their risk of developmental orthopedic disorders. So, you know, that's really hard to do on a home cooked diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really difficult. Um, so I feel like, that's something that it's best let, you know, we have these great diets. Why aren't we using them? There's no negative side effects to having a, you know, commercial diet that's been formulated well Mm -hmm. and that has accurate ingredients in it. And apart from omega-3s, are you using anything else to reduce inflammation? Yeah, I only recommend things that have been shown in blinded placebo-controlled clinical trials Mm -hmm. to be effective. And so I I am a proponent of obviously the omega-3 fatty acids. And then also um, I am a proponent of green lip muscle that mm-hmm. has shown several studies to be beneficial. And then also I am a proponent of elk velvet antler. I know not mm. a lot of people about that, but that's been shown to be effective as well. So Okay, how studies- are you sourcing that? Um, there are, uh, very good, um, elk velvet antler suppliers who have elk ranches online and you can go and, and, um, they do humane, you know, velvet harvesting and things like that, um, that you can reach out to online. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. I did, I have seen some of the papers that are circulating about elk velvet, but obviously it's not something that is overly commonly seen in Australia. So yeah. you must have brought that over over with you. <laughs> that, I did. Yeah. So, Wendy, one of the most common, or particularly when I was in practice, one of the most common orthopedic diseases I saw in dogs in particular was obviously a ruptured cruciate ligament. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but would this be one of the more common surgeries that you perform in terms of traumatic injuries that you see occur in dogs come through? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's actually the most common joint injury in dogs. Um, and it's most commonly not traumatic, but it is a chronic progressive tearing of the ligament in the knee of dogs. Yes. Correct. Okay. So talking about that, obviously most of the time we're going to have to perform a corrective surgery on these guys. But what I'd really love to know about 
is your approach to recovery. I know that I know that you do work with canine rehabilitation techniques and obviously you've talked a bit about some of the anti-inflammatory diets and supplements that you might reach for. But if you were to send someone home with a recovery plan, what would that look like? Yeah, actually, actually, I've done research on this topic. Oh, and perfect. I, I, did a, <laughs> I did a study looking at a, a bunch of a group of dogs who had um, knee surgery and I divided them into four groups. And those groups were, we were blinded to what they were being treated with um, so that we would have, you know, relevant data. But one group didn't have anything different after surgery. They were just rested for um, eight to 12 weeks after surgery. So Mm -hmm. short leash walks of five minutes. Yeah. So that was our control. Our treatment group um, had... um, a diet that was higher in protein. So it had 30% protein on a dry matter basis and it had omega-3 fatty acid supplements in it. Mm -hmm. That was um, one group. Now that group was also divided. The dogs either got with that diet, physical therapy with um, underwater treadmill and at-home exercises. And the other group just got the diet. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth group um, had the physiotherapy, but um, no change in diet. Right. Okay. So so we looked at how long it took them to recover. We put um, activity monitors on them, sort of like Fitbits for dogs to see how physically active they were. We followed their osteoarthritis progression in their joints for six months. And we did owner questionnaires um, evaluating their outcome. And then we analyzed their gait as well. Mm-hmm. And we looked at um, what kind of inflammation was present in the joint all the way out to six months after surgery. How did well, you assess that? Sorry, Wendy. So we looked at um, different markers of inflammation in the joint fluid right. of dogs for up to six months. Yep. So what we found was that diet um, significantly um, shortened the time that they were lame after surgery. So they were normally weight-bearing by eight weeks if they've got the high-protein, high-omega-3 fatty acid diet by by two months. And the wow. group that didn't have that yet was still lame um, until six months post-op. Wow, that's really interesting. And that's the treatment group that had the physical therapy but not the diet you're talking yeah, about or they, the control? Well, no, they had diet and physical therapy. That was the group that did the best. The best, yeah. So what we found was that diet number one had the most effect on weight bearing after surgery. And that we found was because that inhibited um, the inflammation. There were no inflammatory markers or at least a massive decrease in those markers mm. after surgery. Wow. And they stayed low as long as the dogs were on the diet. And mm-hmm. so that was the omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Then we found that there was a contribution of rehabilitation in these dogs as well. And dogs, regardless of diet, were more physically active even six months after finishing the program if they had had physiotherapy after surgery. Mm -hmm. So we found that their physical activity, their light to moderate physical activity was equal to before they were ever injured if they did 
physiotherapy after surgery. So fantastic. That, yeah, that was really important. But and then we found that um, diet had to, had a significant effect on the reduction of progression of arthritis after surgery as well. And wow. rehab had a little bit of effect on that. So so the so what I recommend now is that they go on um, a diet that has at least 30% protein on a diet uh, on a dry matter basis and that it has high omega-3 fatty acids and that they stay on that diet for the rest of their life in order to reduce the progression of osteoarthritis Mm -hmm. because they're always going to be at risk in that knee following the injury. And when you're talking about high omega-3 or or what was the dose of omega-3s that you used? Yeah, you don't want to give too much omega-3 fatty acids, but you do want to give around 80 to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day in in total in their, as their intake. Part okay. can be diet, part can be supplement. Yeah. Um, and that's combined EPA and DHA? That's right. Yeah. So omega-3s are called omega-3s because there are three different fatty acids in it. The only fatty acids that actually count are the EPA and DHA. The third omega-3 um, fatty acids, which is um, linoleic acid, does not count. It doesn't do anything to inhibit arthritis or mm-hmm. inflammation. Um, and it's found in safflowers. So the thing about omega-3 fatty acids, you have to be really, really careful about what you buy because they have variable amounts of EPA and DHA. And safflower oil has linoleic acid in it. And so people can say it's an omega-3 fatty acid because it is. It's just not the one that inhibits inflammation. So, because mm. the conversion oil, to EPA is poor in dogs and cats, is that why? Yes, that's yes. right. Yeah, and so they cannot convert; they have to take it in primarily. So, yeah. you want one that's high in EPA and DHA yep. to have a significant effect on inflammation and to slow arthritis progression. And are you looking for a particular ratio of EPA to DHA? Are you looking for high no. EPA? Supplements. Nope, doesn't matter. No. Okay. That's that's amazing results that you got from this trial. Yeah. And so the physiotherapy didn't even take that long. So we started with them doing um, what we call squats for dogs, where (laughs) they sit to stand exercises Mm -hmm. and they built up to like 20 to 40 a day so that they're building up those hamstring muscles, which Mm -hmm. help protect the stifle joint, the knee joint. And then at about three to four weeks after surgery, we put them um, in an underwater treadmill and that built more muscle. And we did that um, for um, about six weeks after surgery and then stopped. That was it. Okay. And so moving forward after that sort of six-week period, what were you advising your pet parents to be doing exercise-wise? Were they to so, continue with sort of the, you know, the gradual increase in leash walk time, avoid certain right. things? Right. So they could gradually increase their exercise over the next um, few weeks until they were 12 weeks post-operative. And then once they reached 12 weeks, they could have unlimited activity and be normal dogs. And so I had one dog that was in the group that got both the diet and the physiotherapy. And that dog at 12 weeks after surgery was running six miles a day with its owner. Oh my gosh. 12 yeah, weeks. And no lameness. Wow. I know, right? 
<laughs> That's incredible. And yeah. did the other, uh, eventually, we, did you follow these dogs after the six-month period or have you rechecked in no. with them to see whether the other knee has had to have surgery or they've had any complications? So what we found was that the dogs who had the diet were less likely to rupture their cruciate on the other side. Wow. And so um, we suspect that it, it does help inflammation. But I think physio is really important because the more muscle mm-hmm. you have, the less strain on ligaments there is over yeah. time. So we want these dogs to have a lot of muscle. And that's where the protein in the diet comes in as well. So, you know, they looked at human men um, and who had ruptured their cruciate ligament, their ACL. Mm-hmm. And they all the men in this study got physiotherapy after their surgery, but part of them had increased protein in their diet. And those people recovered faster and were more likely to go back to their normal physical activity than the people who weren't taking more protein in. So mm. you need protein to make muscle. Yeah. And if you're if you're not taking in enough, now this is, you know, saying, ooh, are you taking in enough or not? And and that's the question. Most diets for dogs have about 20% protein on a dry matter basis. And so we're talking about during the period of recovery, increasing them to 30%. Just for the period of recovery. And then are they dropping yeah. down again after yeah. eight weeks, 12 down. weeks? Yeah. Usually I say until they're done with rehab um, and they're healed. So 12 weeks. Yeah. Yep. And type of protein, is that important? It is because the type of protein you take in so if you take in red meat, it has a lot of omega-6s in it. And omega-6 fatty acids actually counteract the omega-3 fatty acids. So you want to have more of, you can have some red meat, that's fine, but you need to have a, at least some of that protein be fish-based mm-hmm. so, so that you have more omega-3 action. Yeah. Yep. And what about if people are putting fresh meat into their dog's diets, if they're using grass-fed sources with a higher omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, you find, did you look into that at all or is have you got anything to comment about that? Uh, I have nothing to comment about that. We didn't look at that. We just looked at, you know, overall the protein content and overall the omega-3 content. Yeah, yeah. sure. And were you using any anti-inflammatory pharmaceutical medication? Do, or no, do, you, they, do you recommend that in the post-op period now? Yeah, all I, I only give um, NSAIDs for five days after surgery. Oh, wow. That's so different to what I have seen in practice. Exactly. Yeah. So NSAIDs... Um, they are very useful. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs are really useful at inhibiting pain, but they do not slow the progression of osteoarthritis. And some, in some cases, they can actually increase the progression mm. of osteoarthritis. And so we do not want to rely on them all the time. If you have a period of pain where there's a flare-up, then yes, definitely use them. And in my geriatric patients, I try to get them down to maybe once or twice a week, giving mm. an NSAID, but no okay. more than that. And so are you saying, suggesting to the the pet parent that they give it 
on an as-need basis once or twice a week, given that we know that the half-life obviously isn't sort of four days long unless you're using one of those longer acting. So if they're having a really tough day, they're reaching for it then. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Just like you would in yourself. You don't don't take it every day. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I don't want it in, in veterinary medicine, especially in dogs and cats, we, we rely on NSAIDs as the first thing we reach for. And I don't think that that for acute inflammation, absolutely. But for chronic conditions that have been going on for a really long time, it should not be the mainstay of therapy. Absolutely not. I completely agree. And going back to omega-3s, obviously you mentioned that you like to use greenlit muscle as well. And I know with greenlit muscle, it has a unique omega-3 fatty acid ETA as part yes. of the profile that has nice anti-inflammatory effects that work slightly differently to EPA and DHA. Did you have anything that you wanted to share about that? Yeah. And so when you, the great thing about greenlit muscle is, is that if you have a case of severe osteoarthritis and sometimes the omega-3s aren't going to be enough. You can actually, you know, significantly reduce their pain and lameness by adding in the greenlit muscle. So it can rescue a lot of patients who have more severe disease present, Mm. whereas before we didn't have anything to help them with that pain and there are no side effects. So Mm. it doesn't hurt the liver in, in the levels that we use it. It doesn't hurt the kidneys. So we can also give it to geriatric patients, so older patients with a lot of comorbidities and a lot of other problems. Mm-hmm. And we find that that's really important um, when we're trying to treat these diseases long-term as well as um, slow their progression of arthritis. And that greenlit muscle can help with that as well. So mm-hmm. I think that that it's a vital way in addition to the omega-3s to fighting that disease process. Okay, so you're using it in co- combination with fish oil? Yeah, usually yeah. I do. Um, yeah. If they are not tolerant of fish oil, then I will, you know, because some dogs and cats aren't, then I will just feed them the, um, give them the greenlit muscle yeah. supplement. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what about glucosamine and chondroitin? Are you using them at all in any basis? Yeah, I do use them. Now, the literature on chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine is very, very variable in that some animals and humans will respond to it and have an improvement and others, it will have no effect at all. Mm. It is best early in the course of the disease. So Mm -hmm. glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate are really valuable when the osteoarthritis first stops or starts because it can slow it down. And they're Mm -hmm. also really valuable in in animals that don't have it, but are at risk of getting it. So all of my police and military working dogs are on glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate and um, omega-3s because we know they're going to get osteoarthritic. So all my sporting dogs, so hunting dogs, agility, um, you know, all yeah, of large those, breed dogs. Yeah, large breed dogs. They all go on it because it is very valuable at at slowing arth- osteoarthritis down and preventing it from occurring in the first place. So when you when I talk about 
osteoarthritis that's already established, then I'm I'm talking about the omega-3s, green lip muscle, and elk velvet. Yeah. When I'm talking about preventing it in young animals, then I'm talking more about, you know, polysulfated glycosaminoglycan, yeah. chondroitin sulfate, glucosamine, omega-3s, things like that. So, you know, every great gain should be on it because they're all going to get arthritic. Yeah, for sure. And what age are you you comfortable starting them given the lack of literature? So I usually start it when their growth plates have closed. So that varies obviously with breed. So anywhere from nine months to two years of age. Okay, right. And it's still early enough in your opinion to be beneficial, even if it's at two. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. So talking back about the physical rehab, you're you're using the underwater treadmill and you're using the sit to stand and then once they've finished that short period the owners they're just returning to normal exercise and they don't have to do any sort of continuing physiotherapy at home post op right unless they have significant arthritis so if they have significant arthritis then we often will go on a maintenance type thing like well some dogs you know, who have established osteoarthritis and cats, they need to have a certain amount of activity per day or else they'll get muscle atrophy. It will return. Those cases need to have a regimen. Now, some animals, cats and dogs, are couch potatoes (laughs) and, and some are naturally more physically active. So the couch potatoes need to have exercises done, um, with their owner daily and the owner has to initiate that or at least combine it with a food treat or some sort of positive reinforcement to keep the dog doing the exercises, keeping the dog physically active, you know, taking them on a walk. Sometimes it's all that they need is to go on a walk, walk up and down some hills and they've got the muscle mass. Others, you know, need my really geriatric dogs. I've had dogs 14, 15, 16, 17. Wow. Yeah, come in once a week for underwater treadmill therapy. And I don't know if you know this, but one session of walking in an underwater treadmill is enough pain relief equal to one dose of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Wow, I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So pain relief during the walking or afterwards? Afterwards, it lasts. Wow. How long does it last for? Usually until the next day, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Do you have a um a reference for that? I'd love to read that paper. Yeah, I will I will get that too. Yeah, great. I'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah. So I think that that's really important to remember is that there are other ways to treat the pain and pain of chronic disease. So we have other things like laser dogs with I have a lot of older dogs with lower back pain who just come in, a lot of little dogs too. I have one, her name is Jessica, and she comes in every other week to get her back lasered. And that is enough to keep her active. The owner started coming in to see me about three months ago um, because his his dog, who's 15, she's a 15-year-old mixed breed dog who weighs about six kilos. And she um, was really slowing down, getting really stiff, you know, not really with it, refusing to do anything, didn't play with her toys mm. for at least a year. And so we started him on, obviously, the su- her on the supplements and told the owner, all right, let's do some laser to get her pain down because you just touch her back and she would cry. Mm. And so we started the laser and not only did she 
you know, not have pain when you touched her back. But she actually got her toy out and start at, started asking. Oh to play my with gosh, them. that is so beautiful. He was, yeah, he was almost crying. He yeah. was like, "She's back again. My dog is back." Yeah. And so she gets physio every other week. We do lasers. Sometimes we do underwater treadmill things like that. And then that's all she needs to keep her her back in check. And she does do the supplements, and she's extremely happy. And on that maintenance protocol. And it depends on the patient. You know, some need it once a month. Some need to come in twice a week. It, it's variable. But, mm-hmm. um, and I think it depends on the patient. So, you know, dogs who are naturally very active and their owners are really active, I don't have to continue any kind of physio plan. Others that are not or are very geriatric, then they need to continue. Yeah, for but, sure. Yep. And in terms of those really active ones, is there particular things that they shouldn't be doing? Yeah. So after knee injury or with any osteoarthritis, the activities that should be avoided are, you know, running on slick surfaces or concrete. Mm. We want to exercise them on non-slick surfaces. So put area rugs down in your house. Don't let them run up and down the stairs. That's like really bad. And when they exercise on walks, have them on grass. And then as far as... Um, play with other dogs and retrieval. When you when they retrieve a ball, dogs tend to do these sort of jerky, yeah. twisty motions. That's not good for them. No, we don't want to do that kind. And we don't want them playing hard with other dogs. In that, we don't want them to get body slammed because mm. that really does a number on the, these joints. These joints aren't that stable. All they have is the muscle holding them in a good position. And so if they get any kind of torque motion or sharp turning that's going to twist a joint or any kind of force that's going to twist a joint, that will cause a flare-up of their arthritis. And so you, you encourage them to do walking, including hills, but not stairs. Yeah. So they can do stairs if they're walking. Okay. Right? If you're walking and taking one step at a time. What's not good about stairs, which most dogs and cats do, is they leap and skip steps and things like that. Mm, so jumping often on beds and couches and things obviously is included in that too. Right. And yeah. so like Jessica, she has, um, um, you can purchase little steps that go up to the height of your bed or couch. Mm-hmm. And so Jessica walks up and down the steps to get up and down sweet <laughs> yeah right and so it is a lifestyle change yeah but I want her doing stairs because that's really good at building muscle, muscle right? yeah it's great for you but I want her walking yeah and leaping because that leaping is and skipping steps is high impact activity which is not good for your joints or your your discs and your back yeah I was going to just say I would think that particularly going downstairs would be very hard on the back if they're leaping and skipping stairs yeah off the bed, you know, jumping down off the bed, very bad for your back. You can throw your bag out doing that. So it's kind of a lifestyle change to a low impact, but high activity state. I want you to be highly active. And I tell owners, I want them to be very active because that builds muscle. But I don't want anything that's going to be high impact activity. Yeah. And obviously if, you know, the more active they are, the less likely they are to be overweight as well. Which yeah, so reducing that load. Exactly. We want them to be slightly underweight or normal weight because, again, that slows the progression of osteoarthritis as well. So a great body weight and physically active. You have more muscle. 
Um, you're going to have less pain, less progression of arthritis. All of those things play in. Yeah, for sure. And acupuncture, is that something that you have utilized or have is any of your clients using that as a treatment modality? Yes, acupuncture is great, especially I, I don't I'm not trained in acupuncture, so I have other people do that for me. But um, acupuncture is really good at inhibiting those pain signals that go to your brain. Mm. And in especially mild, moderate cases of osteoarthritis, acupuncture is a mainstay of treatment because it does inhibit that pain sensation so that they can be active and build muscle. Mm. Yeah. So as the disease progresses in severe cases, it can be, you know, become resistant to acupuncture, just like they can become resistant to laser yeah. or any other type of therapy. So we sometimes we have to give them a break and let have time off the acupuncture or the laser and then come back and do it again. Um, but it is very valuable as part of our management tool. Mm. And so if you give them a break and then you come back to it again is does that are the nerve pathways they sort of like it's having it for the first time again and it works the same as it did the first time just because they've had a break right they right, can, okay. can reset them by giving them a break oh, okay so, yeah. i didn't realize that that's really interesting yeah so I know that we're sort of getting close to time, but what I'm hearing here is that one of the most important things with recovering from cruciate ligament surgery, any orthopedic surgery, or managing an osteoarthritic patient is the pet parent, as we like to call it on the podcast. Uh, how are you getting the parents on board with these treatment plans, dietary changes, supplementation? I know my experience working in practice, that was sometimes a bit of a hard hurdle to overcome. Uh, so have you got any tips <laughs> for us? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, never take on too much at once. Mm. So I never give them more than like three new things to do at once. Yeah. If, if you give them more than that, they will be overwhelmed and less likely to be successful. But treatment of arthritis, while it cannot be cured, it can be managed very effectively and, you know, and not you know, significantly affect their life mm. um, or the lifespan of their pet. But mm. it does require an overall change in lifestyle. And so that means that, you know, they have to, if they're really, you know, if, if you have a 15-year-old dog and you still want to run six miles, I'm going to say every day, I'm going to say, no, you, you can't do that. Mm. But but you can go on really, really long walks with your dog and you can do things like that. And then, you know, incorporating the supplements into their diet and changing their diet. Once you get used to it, it's fine. Mm. You get used to it and it's not a problem. I yeah. think that, you know, just changing the mindset of, of your dog and not thinking, oh, this disease is not curable, there's nothing I can do about it. That's not the truth. While arthritis is a diagnosis that is forever, it's not defining as long as you, you manage it well. And that's multimodal management. So exercise, diet, um, and lifestyle are all ways that play into it. And it may it will not significantly affect your pet if you if you look at it that way. 
Mm, I love that. That's a beautiful way to to close the episode. That's a really nice way to summarise everything that you've talked about. And it actually, when you break it down into those relatively simple changes, it doesn't seem so overwhelming after all and something that seems really achievable for, for everyone who has a, a pet that does need some um, some support in this area. That's right. I mean, you know, and I've had pets who I had one dog, he was 17, and he had been coming in to see me for two years. I had a cat who lived to be 23. Oh, my goodness. Her, her <laughs> arthritis. Yeah. Wow. And she was coming to me when she was 17, and she lived to be 23, and she would come in once a week, every week. And, you know, it's, it's I, I, I want to say to people that, you know, we all have problems. We all have stuff that's wrong with us, but... It, but it doesn't mean that it's the end of your life. You just no. need to adjust yourself a little bit and you can live a very long, happy, you know, really fulfilling life. Oh, amazing. Well, it sounds like everyone who comes to see you is very lucky to have you as their awesome. as their carer and on their team. <laughs> Thank you awesome. so much, Wendy, for giving up uh, your precious time to talk with us today. It's been really, really interesting and insightful, and I'm sure that everyone is going to get so much uh, out of this, some really practical sort of tangible tips in there for practitioners who are listening and for our pet parents who are listening. So thank you. Before we go, are you able to share your contact details with us uh, so people, if they are interested to find out a bit more about you and some of your publications, um, you know, a website or, or somewhere to direct them to? Yes. So um, I am on the University of Sydney um, School of Veterinary Science website. Um, so if you just look me up, um, I'm also on the University um Veterinary Teaching Hospital of Sydney website as well. Great. And then you can always email me at wendy.balser at sydney.edu.au. And if you want to make an appointment, please feel free to call the University of Sydney Veterinary Teaching Hospital. And that's on the website as well. Amazing. And do people need a referral to come and see you? Um, if it's for something that's already been established, I really like the vet to send me their notes mm -hmm. so that I know the whole, you know, everything that's been done with their, their pet. That would be great, but they mm -hmm. don't necessarily need a full referral to come, come see me and chat. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you again, and I hope you have a marvellous rest of your day, and we'll have to have you back again soon to talk about another amazing topic that you are a specialist in. <laughs> okay, that'd be great. I would love it. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you. This was the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Wendy Boltzer today, please feel free to jump onto iTunes and rate and review so others can find it.